Chapter Eighteen of Snarleyow by Frederick Marriott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The whole of which has been fudged out of the history of England, and will therefore be quite new to the majority of our readers. Were we in want of materials for this eventful history, we have now a good opportunity for spinning out our volume. But, so far from this being the case, we hardly know how to find space for what is now absolutely necessary that the reader should be acquainted with. Our friends may probably recollect, when we remind them of the fact, that there was a certain king, James the Second, who sat upon our throne, and who was a very good Catholic, that he married his daughter, Mary, to one William of Orange, who in return for James' kindness in giving him his daughter, took away from him his kingdom, on the plea that, if he was a bad son-in-law, at all events he was a sound Protestant. They may also recollect that the exiled king was received most hospitably by the grand monarch, Louis the Fourteenth, who gave him palaces, money, and all that he required and, moreover, gave him a fine army and fleet to go to Ireland and recover his kingdom, bidding him farewell with this equivocal sentence, that the best thing he, Lewis, could wish to him was never to see his face again. They may further recollect that King James and King William met at the Battle of the Boyne, in which the former was defeated and then went back to St. Germain's and spent the rest of his life in acts of devotion and plotting against the life of King William. Now among other plots, real and pretended, there was one laid in 1695 to assassinate King William on his way to Richmond. This plot was revealed. Many of the conspirators were tried and executed, but the person who was at the head of it a Scotchman of the name of Sir George Barclay escaped. In the year 1696 a bill was passed by which Sir George Barclay and nine others who had escaped from justice were attainted of high treason. If they did not choose to surrender themselves on or before the 25th day of March ensuing, strange to say, these parties did not think it advisable to surrender themselves. Perhaps it was because they knew that they were certain to be hung. But it is impossible to account for the actions of men. We can only lay the facts before our readers. Sir George Barclay was, by birth, a Scotchman, of high family and well-connected. He had been an officer in the army of King James, to whom he was strongly attached. Moreover, he was a very bigoted Catholic, whether he ever received a commission from King James, authorizing him to assassinate King William, has never been proved. But, as King James is well known to have been admitted into the order of the Jesuits, it is not at all unlikely. Certain it is that the baronet went over to St. Germain, landed again in England, and would have made the attempt had not the plot been discovered through some of the inferior accomplices and it is equally sure that he escaped, although many others were hung, and few people knew what had become of him. 
The fact was that when Barclay had fled to the seaside, he was assisted over the water by a band of smugglers who first concealed him in the cave we have described, which was their retreat. This led to a communication and arrangement with them. Sir George Barclay, who although foiled in his attempt at assassination, never abandoned the cause, immediately perceived what advantages might be derived from keeping up a communication by means of these outlaws. For some time the smugglers were employed in carrying secret dispatches to the friends of James in England and Scotland, and as the importance of the correspondence increased, and it became necessary to have personal interviews instead of written communications, Sir George frequently passed over to the cave as a rendezvous, at which he might meet the adherents of the exiled king. In the course of time he saw the prudence of having the entire control of the band, and found little difficulty in being appointed their leader. From the means he obtained from St. Germain, the smuggling was now carried on to a great and very profitable extent, and by the regulations which he enacted the chance of discovery was diminished. Only one point more was requisite for safety and secrecy, which was a person to whom he could confide the charge of the cave. Lady Barclay, who was equally warm in the cause, offered her services, and they were accepted. And at the latter end of the year 1696, about one year after the plot had failed, Lady Barclay, with her only child, took up her abode in this isolated domicile, Sir George then first making the arrangement that the men should always remain on the other side of the water, which would be an additional cause of security. For upwards of four years Lady Barclay had remained an inmate, attending to the instruction of her little Lily, and carrying on all the correspondence, and making all the necessary arrangements with vigor and address, satisfied with serving the good cause, and proving her devoted allegiance to her sovereign. Unfortunate and otherwise as were the Stuart family, there must have been some charm about them, for they had instances of attachment and fidelity shown to them of which no other line of kings could boast. Shortly after the tragical events recorded in the last chapter, the Jesuit came out of the cave and went up to Sir George, who coolly observed, "'We have just been sending a traitor to his account, good father.' "'So may they all perish,' replied the priest. "'We start this evening?' "'Certainly. What news have you for St. Germain?' "'Much that is important. Discontent prevails throughout the country. The affair of Bishop Watson hath brought much odium on the usurper.' He himself writhes under the tyrannical commands of the commons, and is at issue with them. And in Scotland, father? All is there ripe and ready, and an army, once landed, would be joined by thousands. The injustice of the usurper in wishing to sacrifice the Scotch settlement has worked deep upon the minds of those who advance their money upon that speculation. In the total, a larger sum than ever yet was raised in Scotland. Our emissaries have fanned the flame up to the highest pitch. 
To my thoughts, good father, there needed not further discontent. Have we not our king dethroned and our holy religion persecuted? True, my son, true, but still we must lose no means by which we may increase the number of our adherents. Some are swayed by one feeling, and some by another. We have contrived to throw no small odium upon the usurper and the betrayer of his wife's father, by exposing and magnifying, indeed, the sums of money which he has lavished upon his courtesan, Mistress Villiers. Now by his heretic and unsanctified breath, raised into the peerage by the title of Countess of Orkney, all these items added together form a vast sum of discontent, and could we persuade his Catholic majesty to rouse himself to assert once more his rights by force of arms, I should not fear for the result. Had I not been betrayed, observed Sir George, musing, before this the king would have had his own again, and thrice blessed would have been the arm that had laid the usurper low, rejoined the Jesuit. But more of this hereafter. Your lady hath had much converse with me. She thinks that the character of the man who commands that cutter is such as to warrant his services for gold, and wishes to essay him. The woman Corbett is of that opinion, and she is subtle. At all events it can be tried, for he would be of much utility, and there would be no suspicion." the whole had better be left to her arrangement. We may employ and pay, yet not trust him. That is exactly what Lady Alice had proposed, replied the Jesuit. Here Lily came out to tell her father that the morning meal was ready, and they all returned to the cave. That evening the boat was launched, and the Jesuit went over with Sir George and landed at Cherbourg, from whence they both proceeded with all expedition to the court of King James. We have entered into this short detail that the reader may just know the why and the wherefore these parties in the cave were introduced. And now we shall continue our most faithful and voracious history. End of chapter 18 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina